All right, welcome back to another episode of the Jacob Johnston Show. Now, I'm starting to go off and rethink my whole idea about professional intros. I have maintained up until this point that professional intros, like what you hear on radio, is about adding fluff and killing just a little bit of time while trying to impress you with production over content. But now I'm starting to realize that maybe the whole idea behind the production of a professional intro is less about fluff and more about being able to not have that clunky in- intro and you know rapport building where you just play the intro and you get into your first story. That may be the way to get things started because I go off and I try to do a little rapport building and then try to find a way to transition into the first story or conversation of the day. Now, other people, they can go off and provide you just a little bit of insight of what's going on in their day, give you a little bit of personal thing, and then have an intro going going ding, 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 you know, a fight bell to transition into the first topic or conversation of the day. So I will decide uh, between one of those. Now, I will say here that as the audience has grown and I'm starting to get more of a marketing budget, uh, I am starting to go through and run advertisements on Facebook in order to get more awareness of the show out there. And as I was doing so, Facebook makes it very hard these days if you're in the space of politics because they treat advertising anything about politics or social issues or anything like that as you know, campaign and they got to, you know, protect against Russian interference. So in order to run ads, you know, for a political podcast, you got to submit your ID, confirm a bunch of information, and then, you know, your podcast, you know, will read, you know, paid for by, and then your name, but you can't edit out, you know, your middle name, whether or not that's, you know, really that big of an issue, but it just, getting it all set up and started and being able to run an ad that accurately displays what the show or the conversation is about is just becoming more and more of a hassle. And yet, if you're one of those big established news outlets, you don't have to go through that. You know, the whole paid for by yada, yada, yada. And it's just interesting how they treat us small podcasters and smaller um, voices much differently than the bigger voices. And they try to justify it over election security, even though the whole, you know, Russia interference and all of that was basically, they didn't even really try. You know, when you take a look at all the money spent and then take a look at what Russia spent on developing online content and ads, you realize that basically Russia just threw pocket change at the election, you know, and trying to influence the election. And when you take a look at the engagement on the ads that they ran, it was like next to nothing. But the implication of the left's narrative about how Russia had this big influence on the election is now translating to making it harder for us smaller voices out there, you know, conservative voices, to be able to engage in the marketing effort to get the awareness of the show out and being able to grow our audience. And that's in addition to the social media censorship 
that makes it so that you have to engage in paid advertisements in order to have any hope of reaching anybody. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's go ahead and start getting into the show. Hey, you know, that's a simple way to do the transition. Okay, let's start getting ready and get into the show. All right, so as I go through and I do a lot of the research and prepping for a show, I tend to monitor certain political accounts on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, I'm going to monitor Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Donald Trump. Why? Because this is a presidential election year, and those are the three candidates for president. Donald Trump being the only Republican candidate, and Bernie Sanders is still in the race competing for the nomination against Joe Biden. And I see Sanders go out there and put out a tweet, and he does this usual shtick, right? Where he goes off and says, in the world's wealthiest country, it is a shame that people go without affordable and then insert the issue. But he never goes off and actually explains what the root cause of the problem is. And never once does he ever give you any indication of what his plan is to solve it. He just goes off and thinks that by waving the magic wand of declaring it a human right, that suddenly it will be solved. And that, that that's his whole shtick. But whenever anybody tries to press him on, well, how do you plan to actually do that? He gives non-answers. He avoids the question, but he drags out his non-answer endlessly so that the person asking the question has to try and decide based off of their show, whether to keep trying to press them on developing or giving a plan or just moving on and hope that the next question will lead to an actual answer. And Bernie Sanders continues to prove that he is just a snake oil politician. He doesn't really have any real principles. Now, I get that people will say he authentically believes in socialism, and yet he is a millionaire. Have you ever noticed all these socialist leaders tend to be the rich, the only rich people in the movement, and everyone else is just completely poor? And when it comes to Bernie Sanders, of course, I can understand why he promotes socialism, because he's been a useless waste of space his entire life and managed to get rich. Why? Because his entire income over his life has come from government, holding government office. And it's also amazing how, as Democrats in office, rail against the millionaires and the billionaires. They're millionaires themselves. And they made all of their money holding elected office, where they started off from nothing, ran for election, managed to get elected to an office, and then kept running for a higher office and somehow become rich. Meanwhile, you out there who actually do something for a living, I mean, let's think about what the politicians do. They run for elected office, they get elected, and then they doesn't really matter whether or not they show up for work every day or take long vacations. They get paid either way. You know, there's no real accountability. They can pass the buck off to anybody else. Well, you know, I fought for this, but it was opposed by so-and-so. And their idea of work is, hey, I have an idea, and let me put this idea on paper. Now I'm going to submit this paper, and you know, we'll have a vote. I mean, they're completely useless, and yet they become 
millionaires. So in any event, Bernie Sanders in doing this stick puts him into a corner as sometimes he goes off and he selects issues that are basically at odds with each other. In this particular instance, Bernie Sanders goes out there and says, stay at home orders. Do not work if you're homeless. We are finding out in this crisis that having a home is health care. Now, let's take a look at what he has said about health care. He has declared that health care is a human right. And when you declare something as a human right, it means that it's something that you are to be guaranteed and guaranteed by the government to be able to have. So if he's now going off and saying having a home is health care, while saying health care is a human right, then by extension, he is saying that having a home is a human right, that this is something to be provided by the government. But what is the root cause of the majority of the homeless crisis in states like California and New York? The Atlantic last year had come out and stated that the homeless population, the number of people who are homeless, has been growing year over year at about 12%. 12%. So the homeless crisis is not anything new. And while people have been talking about the homeless crisis for a long time, what have the Democrats been focused on? Well, if you're in California, you're focused on banning straws and gender-neutral toy aisles. God forbid you actually take a look at the homeless crisis and do something about it. But the cause of the homeless crisis while Bernie Sanders will go out there and try and say, it is the failure of capitalism or unaffordable living, you know, we must raise the minimum wage. Well, the New York Times, in a rare moment of honesty last year, back in June of 2019, came out with an honest piece for once. I know I'm shocked, but every so often, the New York Times might accidentally print something honest. And their headline for this article was, Cities Unlivable, Blame Wealthy Liberal, in which it goes through and it explains that the homeless crisis is due to the restrictive zoning laws, where because of zoning laws that the Democrats have passed and have passed you know, based off of the defense of we need to protect the environment, it makes building new homes really hard and really slow. And it turns out that when you have a growing population, but the number of new houses being built to house that population is slower than the building, or, or that the building of the new homes is at a much slower pace than the growth of the population, that it leaves people without a place to live. Yes. Yes. And what causes the growth in population? Well, for places like California, there's natural childbirth, and then over 18, 19 years, they become adults, and they go out into the world and get a job and look for their own place to live, to move out of their parents' home. Only, there's not enough houses for them, because these restrictive zoning laws have made it hard to build the new houses. So the homeless crisis is not about poverty. It's not about lack of jobs or a failure of capitalism. It is the result of left-wing policies that make it so that you can't build the housing needed. And they justified these policies based off of the environment. 
And now you're starting to see the corner that Bernie Sanders has backed himself into. Because on the one hand, he is saying that climate change is the number one threat facing humanity. And on the other hand, he's trying to say that having a home is a human right. And yet we see the conflict because the restriction in home was designed to prevent or protect the environment. And as we go through and we take a look at the cause of the problem and what the available solutions are, Bernie Sanders is backed into a corner. Because if having a house is a human right, then the only way to go off and provide the housing is to build more homes. But then he will have to come out and say, well, you know, the environment is a, you know, is a threat, but, you know, we still need housing. So if he goes off and advocates that we build more homes in order to provide housing to all these homeless people, he is exposing himself and the Democrats as complete frauds on the environment. That they're using the environment as an excuse for bad policy that is deliberately designed to go off and implement pain and hardship so that they can go off and take that pain and hardship and go campaign on the idea that they're going to be the ones to fix it. That they're creating problems just so that they have a campaign issue. And that there are complete frauds on the environment, using it as an excuse to implement a bunch of stupid policies. So that's option number one. Advocate that we build more homes and expose the left as frauds when it comes to their claims on the environment. Option number two, declare that the private ownership of property is no longer, you know, push for a constitutional amendment to eliminate private home ownership, thereby trying to declare that any home in which there is less than two families living there is required to take in anybody off the streets or anybody who wants to live there, that it is now mandated by government that everyone allow more than one family under their roof, right? But this creates another problem. First off, you're not going to find much support for the idea that you no longer have any ownership of your home and that any random stranger can show up and demand to be able to live in your home with you. Unless, of course, you start living with family, other family members, you know, your extended family. You know, and that makes it so that the houses are going to be more cramped, the kids. And can you imagine trying to have marital relationships with another you know, family living under your roof? Boy, that would be pretty difficult. So there would be absolutely no support for that. Right? Now, option number three, he starts walking back his statement about you know, the poor and the homeless because, you know, the environment, the environment is the number one threat and homelessness, it, you know, it just pales in comparison to the environment. But then again, that, that would go off and expose him as being a complete fraud, an opportunistic slimeball who just goes out there unprincipledly and just declares that everyone should have life handed to them on a silver platter. So what is Bernie Sanders going to do? He's been backed into a corner on this tweet if anyone goes out and decides to call him on it. But here's the rub. Here's why Bernie Sanders is able to get away with things like this. is because nobody's going to call him on it. You think anybody on CNN is going to go out there and call him on, hey, you say 
homelessness is health is a health care crisis, and that having a home is health care to which you have declared a human right. And the only way to solve this is to build more homes. But the reason why homes can't be built is because of policies designed to build the environment. So what's more important? Nobody on CNN, NBC, MSNBC are going to call them out on this. Nor are they going to call them out on all the other issues in which his different positions conflict with each other. No one's going to call him out on these left-wing networks about how he never has a plan for anything. He can't answer questions about how he's going to address anything. All he does is just say, well, I'm going to declare it a human right, and we'll somehow find enough money taxing millionaires and billionaires. Even though people have pointed out that, hey, Bernie, even if you confiscated 100% of the wealth and assets of millionaires and billionaires in this country, it would not be enough to pay for your programs, for all the things that you declare as a human right. And, you know, he never has an answer for that. And the media will never call him out on it. They just won't. Because the media is not about journalism. It's not about providing you truth and honesty or giving you the information you need to make informed choices. There are a bunch of left-wing activists masquerading as journalists, a bunch of political hacks who don't even have a clue what they're talking about. Speaking of which, have you seen the media in these coronavirus press briefings from the White House and how unbelievably stupid they are? For instance, White House correspondents Owen Jensen said, so why even have a few businesses open? Why not just shut down everything? The reporter was asking and pressing President Trump on Sunday on why he has not directed a shutdown of all businesses nationwide, including grocery stores. And so what was going on here is they were saying, hey, this is still uh, contagious and going on. And, you know, we've shut down most of everything, but there's still a few places open and does not pose a threat and allow the virus to continue. Now, think about this for a moment. Why not shut down everything? Because it's impossible to shut down everything. You can't shut down 100% of all stores and businesses. And these are the same people that are expected to give you accurate information on the election and ask the intelligent questions of Bernie Sanders. So let's go ahead and think about this for a moment. Why not shut down everything, including grocery stores? Because people need to eat. I mean, think about this. How are you going to survive a shutdown for two weeks or four weeks or six weeks? I know a complete shutdown if there's no food. Have they really thought about this? There's no food. Do you really think that people have you know, 30 to 60 days emergency food supply that would be able to get them through this time? People are having a hard enough time finding enough food uh, to be able to get them through a week because of all the hoarding. So how are you going to go through and implement a shutdown of everything, including the grocery stores, without people starving and causing more deaths than the coronavirus itself? And because we have the uh, grocery stores open, we need to have a supply chain to get the food to the grocery store so that people can get in there and get the food they need. 
So, of course, we can't shut down the grocery stores and we can't shut down the supply chain to the grocery store. But now let's take a look at this because the left will come, well, what we need to do is just get a a 30 to 45-day emergency food kit out to everybody. And then we could shut everything down because then people would be able to eat. But then you go off and go, but food isn't the only concern. Who's going to operate the power plants for electricity? So now are you going to say we're going to shut everything down, confine people into their homes and the power plants because everything is shut down? There's nobody who's going to be able to be at the power plants. And so now we're going to go without electricity during this time. Oh, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Lock everybody in their home for 45 days without any electricity. And if they don't have electricity, explain to me, genius, how they're going to cook the food for that emergency food supply. Have you actually thought this question through before you asked it? And even if they found a way to keep the electricity going, well, what would people do? There would be no TV. There probably wouldn't be any internet. And if there was, who is going to run the internet sites like Netflix for people to be able to be entertained? So we got these morons out there asking a bunch of dumb questions, trying to think that, well, this is smart because this would get us through the virus. But they never analyze the second, third, or fourth order effects of what it is they're proposing and how that would lead to a much worse situation and cause even more deaths. And yet they want to claim that they're the brilliant people and that Donald Trump is the one that doesn't have a plan or a clue on what he's doing. And of course, because these reporters lack any kind of self-awareness and do not examine their own statements or their own claims or do any analysis whatsoever, They don't realize just how dumb they sound. They don't realize just how clueless they are on everything and why we, the people, are glad President Trump is in office leading the charge and not these useless idiots that just think, oh, we could shut down everything. And if we shut down everything, wouldn't that also mean shutting down all of government? And that would mean shutting down things like uh, the military, which would then leave us completely vulnerable to attacks? Did you actually think about this question before you asked it? Of course not, because you're a liberal hack. You don't care about actual solutions or analysis or anything. You just care about trying to find a way to attack the president, which is why the media and the Democrats are out there trying to advocate and push that we keep the economy closed for as long as possible. Now, look, I've been saying, hey, I was willing to give them the 15 days, 15 days to go out there and find solutions. And we have found solutions. We found a way to double the capacity of our ventilators, hooking up uh, not one ventilator to one person, but one ventilator being able to support two people. We have found drugs that are effective in treating the coronavirus and reducing the death rates. We are out there seeing vaccines. We are seeing ways to share immunity, you know, through plasma, you know, transfusions of people who have recovered and have the antibodies. We have seen great progress. And so now it is time to start getting to the point where we 
reopen parts of the economy, especially in areas that don't have high infection rates. And we ramp up our manufacturing of the needed medical supplies so that we can deal with the increase in coronavirus because no one has gone out there and made any claims that we're going to be able to stop the spread of the coronavirus. It's about slowing down the pace so that we don't overwhelm our medical capacity while we figure out ways to increase our medical capacity and reduce the effects of the coronavirus on those who are affected. But the media and the left, they have an agenda, and that is maximum pain. Because maximum pain, they believe, will allow them to go out there and then claim that, oh, Trump overreacted, and therefore he can't be trusted in leadership. Or, of course, they can still go out there and go, oh, Trump didn't act fast enough or big or bold enough, and therefore we have all these problems. They don't actually care about you know what is working, what isn't working, what the plan is. They just want to keep everything shut down for as long as possible because they believe that that is the key to being able to implement the Democrat agenda. You know, the never let a crisis go to waste. And I'll get into that a little bit later on because we have Democrats on video admitting that they are, you know, taking advantage of the situation to try and push through fundamental changes to the economy and American society. But just know that the media are not out there trying to get you accurate, useful information. They're just out there doing their usual political hackery. And while they're out there doing their usual political hackery, Democrats are out there fighting, fighting to be able to get money to illegal immigrants while American citizens are still struggling. Isn't that amazing? We're at a situation where unemployment is hitting its highs. We're at a situation where people are struggling to be able to get by, pay their bills, even to get food. And the Democrats, what are their concerns? Their concerns are illegal immigrants, people who are in the country in violation of the law, who snuck across the border and aren't even supposed to be here to begin with, who are supposed to actually leave and go back home to their home country, to the country in which they are actual residents and citizens of. But no, the Democrats, because they're concerned about the census, want to be able to provide taxpayer money to illegal immigrants, must fund these people in the country illegally and give them money at your expense. While you, on the other hand, the Democrats are willing to hold you hostage in order to go go through and push their policy agendas. They're willing to hold up relief that you, the American people, needed in order to get funding for the Kennedy Arts Center, in order to get funding for Planned Parenthood and abortion centers, in order to fund all these non-related Democrat agenda items. They're willing to hold you hostage, and they don't care if you're suffering. They don't care if you're struggling, but when it comes to illegal immigrants, oh yes, that's the top priority right there, which goes on to show you time and time again that the Democrats will always prove that when it comes to you, the citizen, you're second class to them. They don't care about you. You might as well not even exist. They're out there saying you're on your own, but when it comes to illegal immigrants, that's the priority. People who shouldn't be in the country, 
must get funding and taxpayer money. That is their priority. And why? Because it's about the census. Because if they can increase the population of Democrat states like California, Washington, and New York, and Illinois, and they could do so by packing it with illegal immigrants, and they get those illegal immigrants included in the census, well, that population growth means new seats will be created in the House of Representatives for those states. That means they have greater control over the legislative agenda because of the number of seats for those states. And if you look at the Constitution, it means they'll have more control and influence over the outcome of a presidential election because illegal immigrants increases the electoral votes for that state. So, of course, illegal immigrants are the priority for the Democrats because it gives them greater power and control and drowns out your voice in government, drowns out your ability to have influence over your elected representatives because they no longer like the idea that it's we, the people, that choose our representatives. No, they want the representatives, the government officials, to be able to choose their constituency. Isn't that convenient? And so they're going out there and they're trying to do everything they can to drown out your voice in government. And that means illegal immigrants are the priority. And you, the American citizen, are second class in your own country. And by the way, American citizenship, that's not a race for any of you lefties out there trying to find a way to, you know, twist and bend the statement. You know, American citizenship is all races, right? Encompasses all races and genders. But illegal immigrants are not American citizens. And they should not be given priority over American citizens. And illegal immigrants is quite simple. Anybody who came into the country illegally crossed our borders without permission and are not supposed to be here. And by the way, illegal immigrants cover cover all races as well. There are illegal immigrants who are white Europeans who are in the country illegally and should be booted out. But of course, according to the Democrats, this is unacceptable conversation. They always try to go off and define what the Ovalton window is, and they've appointed themselves the self-arbiters of what is and isn't the range of acceptable speech. And they've been going off and trying to shrink that window to the point whereby any conversation or any debate that isn't 100% agreement with the left is outside the realm of acceptable debate. And therefore, anybody who doesn't agree with them must be removed from public debate, must be removed from any public platform, and should not be heard or listened to. And of course, they try to find ways to discourage people from listening to you. Because if you go out there and you make rational, intelligent arguments by saying, hey, you know what? We have our elected representatives. They passed laws in order to determine what is legal and illegal entry into the United States. And if you come to the country legally, hey, you're welcome. If you come to the country illegally, then, well, you shouldn't be here and you should be promptly removed. You know, but the Democrats, they want to go through and have open borders. So they have to figure out a way to get people to not listen to you because when there is open debate, the left, well, 
they can't stand it because they will never win an honest debate. So they need to go off and find a way to not only limit debate and determine that anything that doesn't agree with them is outside the range of acceptable speech, but they have to come up with a way to discourage people from actually listening to you. Because if they listen to you, well, then they're going to agree with you because the right has more factually intelligent-based arguments. And so they come out here and start saying, oh, it's a dog whistle. He doesn't really mean what he's saying. It's just a dog whistle for something else. And I found this interesting clip of one of these people from Antifa trying to go off and justify calling everything a dog whistle. And let's see if you can get what the con is. And they use dog whistles. Like when Trump says deport all the illegals, what he's really saying is get all the um, Latinx people out of this country. When he's saying make America great again, he means make America white again. When he says let's take it back to the old days, he's saying let's take it back to the 50s where white people ruled this country. Using how, do, dog how do we know that? Term, these dog whistle words, these um, these phrases that Donald Trump uses, that Jack Posobiec uses, that Mike Cernovich uses, that the most of the alt-light and the alt-right use are terms that means something else. And there is some great dictionaries out there. I know you're not a huge fan of Jared Holt, but I'm sure he has a dictionary out there of, um, you know, right-wing terms that mean something else um, that are dog whistles. Did you catch that? Because that is a member of Antifa going out there and trying to justify the actions and conduct of Antifa and fighting white supremacy and fighting fascism. And they go off and when asked about, you know, these different issues here and they pawn it off as, oh, those are dog whistles. Well, how do you know they're dog whistles? How do you know when one person says one thing, they really mean the exact opposite? Oh, because we created a dictionary. And so, yes, that is the con that the left and the media are doing when they go off and go, well, these are dog whistles. These are dog whistles. Because what they did is they took a look at the arguments that the right was making. That was crushing them in debate after debate. And so they just made up their own dictionary. They made up their own dictionary now in which if you say certain things, well, that means it's a dog whistle and people shouldn't listen to you. If you say things like, hey, we need to get rid of illegal immigrants, you know, that what you mean is not, hey, everyone who came into the country in violation of known U.S. laws, you know, should be removed. That's not what you mean. You mean you want to get rid of all Hispanics from society. You know, that, you know, what the words you use is not what you actually mean. And of course, and of course, apparently the left has developed. Apparently the left has evolved to the point where they can read minds. They now know what you're thinking. They can now know by reading your mind that what you say and what you mean are not the same thing, that they are completely different. And of course, this dictionary is not based off of actual interviews, not based off of actual definitions provided by the right. The dictionary is made up with what the left impugns upon you, what the left wants to believe you mean. Because since the left can't win the argument, so you go off there, and you say something, you debate an issue, you talk about what your positions are, and the left can't argue it. So they use their mind-reading abilities and go, oh, 
you didn't actually mean that. You meant this. And so the left is going off on this whole tangent about about dog whistles and how they know it's a dog whistle because they have some mind-reading ability, I guess. Now, what's really going on here is that the left got tired of losing debate after debate after debate. So they're starting to go off and, you know, make assumptions, going off and projecting onto you their own beliefs rather than actually listening to what it is that you're saying and actually analyzing the information that you're giving. Instead of doing that, they want to project and impugn upon you some negative belief. So some lefty out there started writing down, you know, what the talking points of the right are, are on these various issues and then just started making up different definitions and then going out there and spreading to all their followers. No, 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 no. This is what they actually mean. This is a dog whistle. So if somebody makes this point, what they really mean is this. Therefore, they're a white supremacist. They're a Nazi. They're a fascist. And therefore, you now have the right to beat them up because you have proof they're fascist because they said these words. And although these words in a normal dictionary mean this, when the right uses these words, it actually means this other thing. And so we, and they just know it in their heart. They just know it deep down in their soul that these are dog whistles and what the dog whistles mean. Now, isn't it amazing that only the left can hear dog whistles? Isn't it amazing that only the left has the ability to hear these whistles that nobody else hears, that no one else has any perception of? Why? Because the left is delusional. They're not concerned about honest debate, and they're always trying to find new and creative ways in order to avoid debate, in order to uh, get people to not actually listen to what the arguments are. And this whole, we created a dictionary of dog whistles is just another iteration of that. But you know if the situation was reversed, whereby Republicans come out and take a look at all the things Democrats say most common in their arguments and talking points and created their own dictionary of dog whistles from the left and made up their own definitions of what the left really means. Do you think those same people that declare themselves the ability to create dictionaries that prove what you say in our dog whistles, that determine what you actually mean when you say something, do you think they would accept you being able to do the same thing back to them? Do you think they would accept that if you created your own dictionary of left-wing dog whistles, that they would provide any credence to it, that they would actually allow that to be used in any public debate? No, they would call you a crazy propagandist, a gaslighter, a conspiracy theory uh, nut. That's what they would do. But yet, when they do it, oh, it's justified. It, it, It is completely reasonable. There is nothing wrong with it. It it is honest and intellectually honest. This is how the left operate. They're constantly trying to shrink the Ovalton window of acceptable speech in conversation. They're constantly out there trying to find ways to avoid debate. And that way, 
they can just demonize you rather than going out there and actually defending their positions because their positions are indefensible. So I'm going to start saying, hey, I'm going to create my own dictionary of left-wing dog whistles. When I see leftists going off and making all these statements online, I'm going to make baseless accusations against them and then say, hey, I know that's a dog whistle. And I'm going to create a blog post sometime where I outline what Democrats say and what they really mean and then use that against them. What's good for the goose is good for the gander here. Okay, now it's time to go on and talk about a few things that are related to the coronavirus itself because that is still dominating everything that is going on in our politics. And while I am definitely you know, a conservative, I do take issue with the way some of the conservatives are out there and trying to make the arguments. And I get what the arguments are about the economy and that it's not that COVID-19 isn't a threat. It, it clearly is, but how much of a threat is it? And are the things that we are doing causing more problems and more deaths than what the virus itself would cause. And I get that. But I also get that, you know, this virus, as far as, you know, the information that we have on it, is still less than three months old to us. And there is more information uh, that is coming out. I was just reading an article uh, before I came on uh, to record this particular podcast about how animals at the zoo, you know, big cats, lions, tigers, are now uh, catching COVID-19, that this virus, you know, started off in animals, somehow made a jump uh, to humans. And now it's making a jump to different animal species, you know, where it started off in bats, made a jump to humans, and now it's making a jump to big cats, you know, which goes on to show how much we don't know about this virus, its adaptability, its mutations, and its effect, and its, uh, you know, infection rates. But we also know that there's a lot of people who get it and then recover from it. But we also know there's a lot of people who get it and die from it. I mean, there's just so much that we don't know about this virus, which is why we're taking all these extra precautions. But there are some people out there trying to fill in the blanks with their own political ideology. And this and the right is no exception to this. So I see here from the Federalist, you know, making an argument as to why severe social distancing might actually result in more coronavirus deaths. And it goes on uh, to state that, but what if I were to tell you that our current isolation st strategies may actually result in more deaths from the coronavirus itself? I'll explain. The only way we are going to beat COVID-19 is by developing something called herd immunity. Herd immunity basically means that once a certain percentage of the population develops immunity to a virus, the rest of the population will also be protected. The percentage varies, but is often around 60 to 70%. This is why we don't need a vaccine 100% or to vaccinate 100% of the people to eradicate severely or severely limit the spread of infectious diseases such as polio, smallpox, and measles. In the meantime, we are being told to quarantine as much as possible so the medical system can deal with the many people who become infected. Simple? Right. Unfortunately, it's more complicated than this. 
What the media and policymakers are not telling us is that the longer we delay the development of herd immunity, the more elderly or high-risk people will become infected and die, even if we were to maintain the quarantine indefinitely. Why is this the case? The reason is that only young and healthy people contribute to herd immunity. Elderly and medically ill people generally do not contribute to herd immunity because their immune systems are not strong enough to develop an immune response. And I've heard arguments before about herd immunity and how that works. And yes, there's a lot of viruses in which this is effective, but they're trying to fill in the blanks of information we don't know. For instance, we've seen this virus make a jump from bats to human, and now we've seen it make a jump from human to big cat animals at the zoo. And so we don't know what the mutation or ability of this virus is, right? And we also don't know what the reinfection rate is. Think about this whole idea of herd immunity, right? It doesn't work on all viruses. Because if it did, why are we still getting a cold? Some of us, you know, still get a cold two, three, four times a year. Now, when we go through and we take a look at the idea of herd immunity, why doesn't it work on a virus like the cold? And we see every year that around 35 million people get the flu. Well, at that particular point, considering how many years that we have dealt with the cold and flu, why is it that we're, that herd immunity hasn't protected and eradicated that from society? Because there are some viruses in which, even though you've had it and you've gotten over it, are able to mutate to such a degree that you're able to get reinfected. And there have been people who have gotten infected by COVID-19 more than once. You know, there was a time when they were saying the reinfection rate was at 80%. But I think the reinfection rate has gone down uh, now that it has gone out more. And But there still is a reinfection rate where you can get the coronavirus more than once. So if one person who got it recovered has the antibodies, can get reinfected, how does herd immunity supposed to work in this particular instance? I mean, there's so much that people are not analyzing or they're ignoring for political convenience because they have different worries, you know, believing that, hey, they're safe from the coronavirus and they're more concerned about the economic concerns. And now the economic concerns are a concern and that can lead to deaths too. But, you know, it, it's the situation of the unknown and what people are doing to fill in the gaps and herd immunity. Yes, I've heard of it. I understand it. I, and I've heard this argument being made multiple times. But you're still making the assumption that this virus doesn't mutate much. And you're making the assumption that once you get it, you're immune to getting it again. And the data that we have shows that you can get reinfected. And it does show that this virus has the ability to mutate quite a bit and jumping between species. So what evidence do you have that herd immunity is going to work in this particular situation? You don't. You're just guessing. And what expertise do you have when you're making this argument? You don't. What you're doing here 
you know, at the Federalist. And what too many conservatives I see are doing is that they're reading something, you know, that some expert wrote on a topic regarding different diseases, and then they're just translating that to fill in the gaps of what they don't know about the coronavirus. And you know what? We need to stop that. We need to just actually wait until we get the data. Take a look at what data we don't have and then focus our efforts on getting the information so that we can make the better decision. Okay, so I got about one last thing uh, that I want to get to today, and this is going to have a lot of clips in it as I go through and try and explain this, but the left is finally out there, surprised, surprised that what the right has been saying for years now is actually true that the dangers that we have been warning about for years turns out to be correct. So let's go ahead and hear about how Governor Cuomo is surprised to find out that the right was right about its warning. The simplicity is what makes it so tragic, frankly, because we don't have a piece of equipment, someone's going to die, because we, we don't have staff, someone's going to die. How did we get to this place? In this country, that we have to buy all our supplies from China? I can't get protective equipment because China is making it? And there, Governor Cuomo is actually right that the biggest tragedy that we have when it comes to COVID-19 is the fact that it is so simplistic, right? That is just about manufacturing the equipment. And he's surprised that our ability to manufacture the equipment has been so crippled and that China is doing all the manufacturing. Now, if only, if only there was a politician out there somewhere who had been warning us all these years about the dangers of locating manufacturing in China or in other countries outside of the United States. If only there was someone who was advocating for bringing back manufacturing jobs to the United States. If only there was someone out there like that. Oh, wait, yeah, there is. President Trump. President Trump has been talking about this ever since he entered the race. Back in uh, 2015, when he announced his candidacy for president and throughout the presidential race. You can go back and take a look at the debates that he had with Hillary Clinton during the presidential debates, in which he had made man, bringing back manufacturing such a priority that that was part of the debate questions. You keep talking about bringing manufacturing back. How are you going to do that? Well, first off, let's not let them leave to begin with. And then second off, let's make it you know, be- better or cheaper or more cost effective for them to make it in the United States. And if they make it outside of the United States and then try to import it, well, then that should be penalized, you know, taxes, tariffs or whatever. You know, President Trump has been going out there making this case for a very long time. And the left, how did the left react? Well, they mocked him. They said, well, these are jobs of the past and they're not coming back. I mean, remember, this has gotten to the point where even former President Obama during the 2016 election tried to address this on a PBS NewsHour, trying to say that these jobs aren't coming back. For those folks who've lost their job right now, because a plant went down to Mexico. You know, that isn't going to make you feel better. And so what we have to do is 
to make sure that folks are trained for the jobs that are coming in now because some of those jobs of the past are just not going to come back. And when somebody says, like the person you just mentioned, who I'm not going to advertise for, that he's going to bring all these jobs back. Well, how exactly are you going to do that? What are you going to do? There's, the, there's no answer to it. He just says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to negotiate a better deal. Well, how, what, how exactly are you going to negotiate that? What magic wand do you have? Yes, what magic wand do you have that is going to bring back manufacturing jobs to the United States? Well, these jobs, they were offshored because, you know, we got more important things to do. And then he goes on to say about new manufacturing jobs for solar panels. But our strategic manufacturing has been offshored, outsourced, and all of that. And President Trump, during uh, the presidential debate, pointed out that, hey, a lot of the reason why our manufacturing is going overseas is because there are politicians with ownership interests in a lot of businesses. And so by cutting down the expenses, they're improving the profits and having these things located overseas, making the businesses more profitable, are lining the pockets of certain politicians and special interest groups. And so there isn't an interest among the political class in bringing back the manufacturing jobs. And now we find ourselves in a global pandemic. And what do we see? We see that our lack of manufacturing within the United States is killing people, is costing lives. You know, it, it is really quite amazing. I mean, we are now at a point where as we analyze what Trump has been campaigning and talking about for years, you know, almost seemed like he was a prophet and being able to predict the future of what we needed to do to safeguard ourselves. And the left kept ignoring him. They kept going off and mocking him and trying to say, oh, these are dog whistles. Oh, this is racist. This is xenophobic. Oh, you're, you just don't know what you're talking about. And now we're in a situation where if we had just listened to Trump and implemented his policies quickly and fast during the first you know, three years, we would be in a much better situation and there wouldn't be nearly as many deaths as what there is right now. And of course, the left has come out with yet another talking point in order to try and go after President Trump and trying to say he knew in advance that this was going to happen and he didn't do anything. He knew in 2017 that there was going to be a coronavirus outbreak. And it's really kind of amazing how they make this analogy. Take a listen to this. In 2017, the military identified a novel influenza disease as the most likely and significant threat, which it anticipated would lead to a shortage of ventilators, face masks, and hospital beds per Pentagon document leaked to me. They knew. In 2017, a U.S. government report said very clearly, okay, so a big, probably the biggest threat that we're facing is a novel coronavirus which will leave us with shortage of ventilators, face masks, and hospital beds. They knew, and they did nothing about it. This is the equivalent of the George W. Bush memo, Bin Laden determined to attack in the United States. Remember that? Some of you might not, but there was a memo on George W. Bush's desk, Bin Laden determined to attack in the United States, and they did Dickie McGee's axe. They did nothing. Okay. So you hear that. This is like the George W. Bush had a memo that said Bin Laden 
determined to attack within the United States and that they knew in 2017 that there was going to be an outbreak of the coronavirus. Okay, now, first of all, the coronavirus, the reason why it was called the novel coronavirus when it first came out is because it was new. You had no idea. Now, coronavirus is a class of viruses, right? And when we take a look at it, they have different degrees of severity. How you're going to be able to know in the future which virus is going to make a jump to, you know, mankind from animals. You know, what, do they have psychics working at, uh, in these Pentagon papers? You know, no, it's because they're taking a look here, and it wasn't just 2017. They've been looking at this since the Bush administration, talking about how we weren't necessarily prepared for a pandemic. You know, saying a pandemic was the biggest threat, you know, that would be facing this country, right? And so going off and saying, hey, we know we don't have, you know, the necessary resources of ventilators, masks, and all that to deal with the pandemic. And going back to the Bush era and then going, hey, you know, it started in Bush. We started getting these type of reports. Hey, you know, Obama depleted uh, the supplies and didn't restock them. And hey, in 2017, they once again pointed out that a pandemic and, you know, likely, you know, from some type of coronavirus based off of that past you know, pandemic outbreaks would go through and eventually one day, one day down the road, somewhere, somehow is going to mutate and cause a pandemic. And therefore they knew, right? And they equate this to Bush getting the memo about bin Laden determined to attack within the United States. Now let's be honest here, right? About the whole trying to equate this, you know, to Bush. Bush getting that memo with a vague statement that, you know, bin Laden is determined to attack within the United States. First of all, that's vague. It didn't actually provide any details of what bin Laden was planning. Secondly, they got that memo about bin Laden probably on a weekly basis, probably on a monthly basis. Bin Laden had been determined to attack the United States for a long time and had carried out a couple of small attacks during the uh, Clinton administration going off and saying, Hey, someone uh, dislikes you and they plan, you know, uh, to want to attack uh, within the United States, but we don't know where, how, when, or whether or not they're actually capable of doing so. You know, they're going out there advocating that they sh- want to attack the United States somehow meant that there was some sort of warning about what was going to happen and when now, you know, just because some, you know, they get a memo about a kook. Uh, on a weekly basis saying, yeah, that some unknown time or point they are hoping they can pull off some sort of an attack doesn't actually provide you any actionable information. And so them coming out in 2017 on, you know, these uh, Pentagon papers that this clip uh, was referred to and going at some point in some unknown future, some unknown version of the coronavirus is going to make a mutation and, you know, a cause a pandemic. That's not actual warning. I mean, this is like the Nostradamus effect, where if you make a, something vague enough, right, where you don't provide any specific details and you don't provide any specific time frame, but you write it down and it happens at some point in your life, 
then all of a sudden you can claim you predicted something and you're a psychic and somehow have credibility. You know, putting down that, you know, somebody at some point has a desire to attack the United States or at some point some type of virus is going to go off and mutate and affect the human race doesn't mean you actually predicted anything or provided any actionable information. All you did was just make a vague claim without any information over the who, what, when, where, why. Right? Now, maybe you put in the who, but the what, when, where, and why, you didn't provide any information. But yet we're supposed to believe that you provided something that was actionable, that people could actually do something about. It's ridiculous. Now, if that report actually had in it, hey, in the year 2020, a coronavirus is going to outbreak in China and that it was going to spread around globally and create problems where we would need respirators and hospital masks and our lack of strategic supplies will leave us completely vulnerable. If it provided that level of information, okay, then maybe you have a point. But to go out there and say, hey, we got a report here that says at some unknown point in the future, some unknown version of the coronavirus is going to mutate and cause a pandemic of unknown proportion. And therefore, you know, because we put, uh, you know, that particular claim, you had advanced warning and you didn't do anything about it. I mean, that is ridiculous. I mean, I could go out there and say, hey, at some unknown point in the future, uh, Bernie Sanders is going to pass away, right? And not provide any details of it. You know, whether it's going to be because of a heart attack, whether it's going to be because of a disease or, you know, whatever. But just because I said that, it means that from now until Bernie Sanders passes away, anything he did, I can claim you shouldn't have done that. I gave you advance warning. I gave you advance warning that one day you were going to pass away. And look at all the things you did. And all these things, well, they just led to what evidently, you know, got you in the end. And therefore, you know, I predicted it and you should have listened to me. You understand how vague and absurd that is. You know, all right. So I think I'm going to go ahead and end the show there. I went uh, just a few minutes over, uh, but there was still so much uh, that I wanted to get to as far as some of the absurdity and, you know, some of the things that the Democrats are doing as they admit that they're using the crisis in order to push through uh, their agenda, that they're setting up uh, these committees in order to try and force money to be spent on Democrat priorities rather than actual coronavirus-related, you know, needs, and as well as the Democrats going off and trying to use their second favorite line of attack conspiracy theory in order to get people to ignore truth and facts coming out. They'll come out and say, give you a narrative. And then anybody who gives out counting facts and information, they'll try and go conspiracy theory. And then when it gets to the point where you can't deny the facts, they slowly start rolling out the changes uh, to the narrative and trying to make it softer and everything uh, in order to make you think that, no, 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 this wasn't, you know, political in nature. These were uh, systemic problems throughout the entire organization. I just wasn't able uh, to get to that today. So I'll get to that uh, tomorrow along with a couple of other stories. So thank you so much uh, for your time and attention and tuning in each and every day. I greatly appreciate that. 
and I will be back again soon.